You know, I, uh, Rich talked about honor, and I do want to honor um, all the volunteers, especially the kids' volunteers. As you know, yesterday, there were some of them here over eight hours putting all that together. Um, I got to work with Adam Thurston yesterday and doing the balloon drop, and I'm telling you, seeing it work this morning was the greatest relief, because <laughs> each one of those had 220 balloons in it. We couldn't test it out, I mean, so um, what a relief, but it was so cool being over there this morning, getting to see the joy on these kids' faces, the parents as you guys came in. Um, I, I just want to say this, you know, one thing that we do here at Vertical is, uh, and, and don't misunderstand me, we do not believe that our kids are the next generation. I do not believe that. I believe that they are the now generation. Jesus tells us to have faith like a child, to come to him like a child. And children completely understand Jesus probably better than we do half the time because we let life get in the way, don't we? And so one thing that we have decided to do is really to pour into our children. And when you give, that enables us to be able to do what we're doing over there. So I just wanna say thank you for that. Um, Our kids are awesome. And so, yeah. Uh, Before we jump in this morning, I want to address the elephant in the room, uh, in particular, the polar bear. How many of you have wondered why there's a polar bear on this graphic? Anybody other than me? Thank you. Okay, so I have too. And I've seen this graphic now for like four weeks, and it was driving me crazy. Why Why is there a polar bear? So in staff meeting this week, I asked Jacob, my dude, you gotta tell me why you chose a polar bear because he does all of our graphic design. And he's like, well, you know, he goes to these different websites and gets different pictures and he puts them all together in Photoshop. And he's like, I just searched for creatures and there's all kinds of animals. And then there was a smiling, waving polar bear. So I used it. And I'm like, okay, I can get on board with that. So there's no real reason other than it, it's just funny and it's fun, all right? Uh, but creature of habit, okay? One thing that I know is that we all have habits, don't we? Good, bad, whatever, we all have habits. We're in week two of this three-week series today that, to be honest with you, was actually designed to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because one thing that I know is that very little good or very little growth comes from our comfort zones. No pain, no gain. You ever heard that saying before? Very little growth comes from our comfort zones. When we're comfortable, it's real easy to stay right where we're at. It's really hard to develop. Remember that 40% of our lives are done through habitual things. That's a lot. Almost half of our lives are spent not thinking, subconscious behavior. I just do it because it's easy to do. So today I've titled this sermon, Developing Good Habits. You know, I was actually, when I was putting this message together, I actually wasn't excited to preach it because I did not feel like this was a super spiritual message. I shared that with a few people on staff and I'm like, you know, I didn't, there wasn't a whole lot to dig into and I like to study and I like to get deep and, and really understand kind of the context behind everything. And I was kind of like just struggling, like, you know, this is not something that's just super deep, super spiritual until I realized something, that not everything has to be super spiritual right? Like I could get up here and I could tell you about the importance of reading your Bible and giving your money and, and, you know, praying and attending church and serving and all these things that are great and true and, and important. But what about other things? What about things like, you know, going to your kids' ball games or spending time with family? You know, what about rest? Any nap takers in here? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Those hands went fast. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, the point is, is today what I really wanted to kind of dig into is just applicable, tangible things that maybe we can apply to our lives. I'm not so much gonna give you ideas 
as much as maybe help you to try to figure out what that is, those good habits that you need to apply to your life. You know, like for many of you, like I live a pretty, what would be considered probably a boring life. I mean, I'm not, it's nothing grand. I don't, you know, I'm not out traveling all the time. I love to travel, but you know, it's just a, a normal thing. Um, I had the same kind of thing that I do in the mornings, you know, the same routine. I get in the office about 6.30 and I sit at my desk and I, whatever I do, go through emails or whatever, people start coming in and I'm meeting with people all day long or I'm going to their office or whatever. I get done with the work day and the first thing I do is, and the staff knows this, I go home, I literally go in my house, I change my clothes, I take pre-workout and I head to the gym. It's just kind of my routine. And for me, and a lot of you know this, I am a high anxiety person. I've struggled with it my whole life. I am a high stress person. Uh, endorphins are a glorious thing. And so when I work out, I feel better. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I'm not even saying that I'm stressed. I just carry that with me. And so by doing that, um, it helps me to create and maintain a routine in my life. And as I was thinking about this whole idea, I, like I was thinking about, man, this has become a habit. It's a good habit. I do believe that, that physical habits can, can uh, you know, spill over into spiritual habits and vice versa. But when I realized that I've been in the gym since I was 15 years old, I was going to tell you that. And then I realized, well, I'll just admit how old I am. I've been in the gym for 23 years. I'm 38. Okay. <laughs> if math's hard for you, I'll do it for you. Okay. For 23 years, I have made this a habit. It's more than a habit. It's a passion. It's a release. I, people ask me a lot, how do you find the motivation to go to the gym six days a week? I said, because I'm crazy. <laughs> I, I, I got to have it. Um, but that's kind of my thing. And it has become a habit. It's not, some, it's not a chore. It's not something I ever dread. In fact, I look forward to it. I can't wait to go. It just, I feel better. Um, so it's one of those things that has become a good habit in my life. And I know that by developing that and maintaining that and living it out, it will spill over into other areas of my life as well. Um, because we are creatures of habit. In fact, backstage right before first service, uh, Rich was back there and he, he preaches on a flat table. And I like an angle, okay? And so then he's like, he, he, when he came here, he's like, hey, I have an extra one of these tripod things. I don't know what it's called, but it's like a tripod thing that he uses, right? And he's like, I want you to have it. Man, man, thank you, you know? And so he comes back there and I'm back there kind of going over my notes and I have this. And he's like, bro, where's the table? And I'm like, I'm not there yet, okay? <laughs> and, and he's like, you're such a creature of habit. And, and so then anyway, he, like two minutes later, he's like, man, I'm nervous. I don't want to do announcements. I'd rather preach today. I go, who's the creature of habit now? And he's like, touche. Um, but that's what we do, right? Good or bad, we're all creatures of habit. And for some of you, like I was thinking about this, how many of you, like you pull in the parking lot at work? Have you ever pulled in the parking lot at work and then you're like, how did I even get here? Like you pull in, you're like, I don't even remember driving, right? And the only way you ever remember driving is if you're almost in a wreck, somebody cut you off, or if uh, the road, there's a road closure and you had to go a different way because that freaks you out, right? Okay, or maybe it's one of those things where I, I've talked to people who maybe are retiring or have retired and I ask them, hey, you know, are you, are you ready to retire? Are you excited about it? And I always get the same answer, it seems like. They'll, they'll say something along the lines, I just gotta figure out what to do with all my time now. I'm gonna have all this time. Ask them a year in and it seems like they always say the same thing as well. I don't know how I worked full time before. I'm busier now than I've ever been, right? It's one of those things that all they have to do is, is they have to learn to create new habits in their life. 
See, you and I, most of us, unless you're retired, most of us, we do the same things over and over again. You go into retirement, you're forced into changing, right? So you got you to purposely work toward those good habits. You don't have a whole lot of choice, but for most of us who at least are not retired, um, we've got to make those choices. Last week, you got a card when you left, and on one side it said good habit, the other side it said bad habit. Today, we're specifically going to be talking about developing good habits in our lives. Next week, we're going to discuss the idea of breaking free of bad habits in our lives. Um, but when it comes to the word habit, I was thinking about this this week, because I think that a lot of the times, when we think of the word habit, we, we come at it with a negative connotation, as if it's a bad word, Right? It, it, you know, it's like, I, you know, a lot, like a lot of you know this, I like to define words. Like a lot of my messages, I'll define a word. I like etymology. I like to know what words mean because sometimes I think that we'll say a word and we don't necessarily give it the credit it deserves because again, when it comes to words like habit, we tend to shine this negative light on it as if it's a bad thing when in reality, the word habit is amoral. It doesn't have morals. It can be good or bad. But it does seem like so often we look at it from a negative way. We, we, we either imply it negatively when we say the word habit or we infer it negatively. So the word habit simply means this, an acquired mode of behavior that has become nearly or completely involuntary. That could be good or bad, but we do things without really thinking about it. It reminds me of a path, right? If you walk through the woods and there's a path in the woods, at some point, somebody took that path. And they either took it over and over again or somebody followed behind them and eventually it becomes well-worn. And it's so easy to fall into that. It's so easy to take the comfortable road, isn't it? You know, our brains work the same way. I think Rich talked about it a little bit last week. But I've actually studied how the brain works, the neural pathways in the brain, where it, it literally creates physical pathways in your brain the more you do something. And we tend to take those pathways because they're easy, they're comfortable, they're familiar. And in order to take a different path, we have to be very intentional. And it's not always easy. Probably my favorite point from last week's message was that habits make tremendous friends but terrible enemies. In today's conversation, we're going to talk about the tremendous friends part of that. We're not going to talk about necessarily breaking free. We're going to talk about developing, creating, and applying and living out good habits. So if you've got your Bible or your phone or your Bible app, or if you don't, it'll be on the screen. Turn to Daniel chapter 6. We won't be there for a little bit. I'm going to show you a couple other scriptures first, but I want you to be ready. Daniel chapter 6. And before we get into really anything today, I just have like a little five-word point that I want to give you, and it's this. You are what you do, okay? Whatever you are doing is what you will become. Whatever you have done is probably what you are if you haven't quit doing it. Now, I'm going to come back to this idea later. I'm going to put a different spin on it and maybe give a little bit more of a challenge regarding this, but you are what you do. And today's main message or main, main scripture will be out of Daniel chapter 6. And like I said, it'll be a little bit before I get into it. But I bet you most of you have heard today's story. Whether you grew up in church or not, maybe you've seen it on a kid's show. Maybe you've got a kid's Bible. You learned it in Sunday school growing up. Um, in fact, I'll just, I'll just say it and you can finish it, okay? Because most of you are going to know it first service did, okay? It's all about Daniel, okay? Daniel and the lion's then. Yeah, of course, you've all heard it. And if you don't know hardly anything about it, you probably know something about it, right? That's where we're going to be today. But first, uh, before we kind of get into that, 
I want to give a little bit of context as to where Daniel was, why Daniel was there, what was going on at this time. Uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier in the year, the idea of um, God choosing a nation for himself. The whole Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11, he scatters the nations. He's like, you know what? I want to start over. He ends up finding a guy named Abram, who he later renames Abraham. And he says, hey, I want to create a nation for myself. They go in, there's, and it leads into King David, then it goes into, you know, there's a whole Moses part of it before that. Then there's Joshua and the conquest narrative. They go into Canaan, they overtake the promised land. It becomes Israel. The capital was Jebus, becomes Jerusalem. And the whole point I'm trying to make here is you had this little bitty nation, right? Right in the kind of the middle of everything, this little bitty nation called Israel. And that nation was surrounded by all the other nations that kind of got confused with their languages and scattered at Babel. And, and this nation right here was to be a light to all the other nations surrounding it, to show all the other nations what it looks like to worship Yahweh, the one true God, the creator. This is known as biblical cosmic geography. The point is, is that this was distinct from the physical earth. This is where spiritual met physical, okay? This was to be the closest thing left on earth to mimic as closely as possible the original Eden. God gave them the law, and he said, hey, I want you to do these things, and if you don't do them, there will be consequences. Now, we're all human, okay? None of us are perfect. Do you think that they were? Do you think that they listened to everything God said? No. Whether you read your Bible or you don't, you know we're just, we mess up. Not even close. They wanted a king, an earthly king, a human king, just like all the other nations had. And God says, hey, I want to be your king. I am your king. Just let me be it. And they're like, cool. No, we want a human. All the other nations have one. And, you know, it looks really cool. And God's like, okay, I'll let you have what you ask for. And then we see over and over again, kings failing. Things don't work out the way that, that they wanted it to. God tells them, don't worship any other gods. What do they do? Worship other gods. Over and over and over again, they keep screwing up. So what did God do? Well, before we talk about what God did, he actually spoke through a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah 25, this is God basically telling Jeremiah to tell the people, this is what's coming. Verse 8 says, Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says, because you have not obeyed my words, I am going to send for all the families of the north. This is the Lord's declaration and send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar did not worship Yahweh, but God used him as his servant to get his will done, to get his point across. He says, and I will bring them against this land, against this residence, and against all these surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them, the voice of the groom and the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the, camp, or the lamp. The whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So that's the prophecy. God's telling him, hey, go tell the people that this is what's going to happen to them. Now, I'm not saying that God would have recanted if they would have changed their ways. It really doesn't matter because they didn't. And God knew that they wouldn't. And as a result, many people from Israel, especially from the capital city of Jerusalem, were taken captive for 70 years into a foreign land that worshipped other gods. So we read the prophecy Here's the fulfillment. This is Daniel chapter 1. Okay, this is actually verse 1. There's four verses I'm going to kind of skip around here before we get into the main one. 
Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. So we read what he told Jeremiah and what Jeremiah told the people and immediately you go to Daniel and you see it being fulfilled. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. Very good-looking, without physical defect, kind of like Evan. It's a lot like you, buddy. That's what you get for front row, man. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, and then there, there's these other names, and you probably know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, the whole point was to take these young men and train them for three years so that they would be so well-versed in Babylonian culture that they would serve the Babylonian king and know of their ways, their precepts, their rules, that kind of thing, all right? It's a fantastic story I don't have time to go through. I would highly recommend reading the book of Daniel for yourself because literally in verse 8, you immediately see Daniel um, basically saying, hey, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food. He takes on a special diet that they did not want him to do, and he ends up coming out of it much healthier than anyone else. Later on in chapter 3, you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you see them. They get thrown into a blazing, fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar himself looks. He's like, hey, there is a fourth person in that furnace. It was the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, who we believe will probably be Jesus pre-incarnate. And he saved them, and they come out of the furnace completely unscathed, not burnt, nothing. It's a really cool story. But now here in chapter 6, we have a new king. This took place two kings after Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're to King Darius. It says, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, which is a fancy word for officials, stationed throughout the realm and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself from the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set, them over the whole, to set him over the whole realm. He was going to give Daniel everything because Daniel had good habits. He worked his way up the ranks. The administrators of satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. So let's just pause right there. These officials could not find anything against Daniel. Why? Because Daniel didn't make a habit of doing dumb stuff. He didn't have bad habits. He had great habits. The things that he did was, was full of integrity. The things that he did were good things, and they could not. They, they were mad because here, here Daniel is working his way up the ranks. He's not, even a, he's not even from Babylon originally. He's Hebrew. Here he is in this foreign land, and he's been there all this time. And these people are mad because one of, one of them who's not their own is working his way up the ranks. The very next verse says that these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. In other words, you know, the only thing we can come up with is to blame him for the worship and complete loyalty that he has of the God that he worships. Like, what a great excuse, guys. He's, he's, he's doing everything right. He has great habits. So let's blame him for being loyal to his God. 
Verse 6, of so the administrators of satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. Now, King Darius wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh, but you can imagine as king, he would have loved hearing that, right? You know, being built up. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. And this is where they start the deceptive plan against Daniel because Darius would have been like, yeah, I like that. Like, like I'm the man. Make it about me. He didn't know what they were actually trying to do. In verse 8, therefore your majesty... Establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. It cannot be reversed. Sign this because you're the man and we want to worship you. So King Darius signed the written edict. They literally just said that if anyone petitions any other god or any other man other than the king, that they're going to die. They're going to be thrown to the lions. You think that stopped Daniel? Verse 10, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his, into his house. The windows in its upstairs room were open toward Jerusalem, which was the capital of Israel where he's from. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God. Check this out. Just as he had done before. That's important. I'm going to come back to that. Just as he had done before. Complete worship and loyalty to Yahweh was what Daniel made a habit these guys didn't like his integrity and the attention that he received, so they plotted against him. Worship your God and receive death, or worship the king and live. And Daniel chose the former. Here's what I want to tell you, that the first, really, the first step in creating a good habit in your life is this, is knowing that public victory comes through private discipline. See, Daniel didn't just pray to God three times a day because of his situation, it's who he was. Daniel brought that with him into Babylon. I'll show you. Remember, I said I'm going to come back to it. It says that he gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. What we just read wasn't Daniel 1.1. This was Daniel 6. Daniel, when he came into Babylon, it was estimated that he was between 15 and 17 years old. Whenever he, It said it, right? Young men without defect, physical, good-looking, all this kind of stuff. He came in at 15 to 17 years old. In this story right here, he would have been about 82 years old. So if you're thinking in your mind and you're picturing all the, the Bible stories or whatever of this teenage Daniel being thrown into the lions and sorry to burst your bubble, that's not the case. He would have been more like 82 years old here. And what's interesting, whenever it says, I'll go back to it, it says that he gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. It was thought that he was already in Babylon for 65, 66 years. So if Daniel prayed three times a day, at least in this way, 365 days a year for 66 years, that means he prayed to Yahweh over 72,000 times. That's a pretty good habit. So how's the story end? Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lions. And you see, Darius really liked Daniel. He was tricked into this. He had no idea that the whole reason was so that they would get Daniel killed. He really liked Daniel. He trained him up. He had been trained up. He's using him. He's, he's, he's gaining all this power and control, and the king trusts him. He depends on Daniel. 
And in verse 20, when he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? King Darius didn't serve Yahweh, but he's like, man, I hope, I hope your God protected you. Then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they haven't harmed me. For I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. The king, Darius, he was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed for because he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives. That's some punishment. Literally them and their whole families. Hey, you know what you tried to do to Daniel? It didn't work? Yeah, it's going to happen to you now. And they all died. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Do you know why Daniel was so successful? Not just in this story, but throughout the entire book. You know why Daniel was so successful? It's because developing good habits requires intentionality and consistency. Daniel was very intentional, and he was very consistent in what he did with these good habits. And that intentionality and that consistency led to the good habits, which led to his success. So I guess really the question that I have for all of us this morning is, what change do you need to make in your life? What good habit do you need to develop? The truth of the matter is, is you probably already have an idea, or at least one, right? I think we all know something that we could work on, right? I don't know what that is for you. Everybody's different. But honestly, just by figuring it out, just by admitting it to yourself, maybe out loud, maybe to somebody else, but just knowing it is really the start. And that sounds super simple, doesn't it? Like, you know, just knowing it, it's a start. Yeah, it really is. Now, that's hard enough to admit it, acting it out is really the hard part. Um, anybody old like me remember the 1980s G.I. Joe cartoons? Come on. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. Did you used to watch it? I totally did too. My, uh, my favorite G.I. Joe was Storm Shadow, still is to this day. In case, if you know, you know. If you don't, it's cool. But here's the thing. At the end of every episode, okay, there was these kids that would do dumb stuff. I don't know what they'd do. They'd kick a dog or they'd steal, I don't know, they'd steal something or something, right? And at the end of every episode, they would get caught and they'd get in trouble, right? And one of the Joes, G.I. Joe, he'd, he'd come and he'd be like, hey, you know, this is why you shouldn't do this. It's not nice, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's explaining why the child shouldn't have done what he or she did. And every time the kid would say, well, thank you, mister. Now I know. And the G.I. Joe would respond, and knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. <laughs> I have a, a t-shirt, and I, people, nobody ever understands it, it seems like, but I have a t-shirt, and it's a, it's a pie chart, and it's split down the middle, and there's, over here, there's two quarters, and it says red lasers, blue lasers, and then there's half, and it just says knowing. In other words, knowing is half the battle. Get it? Never mind. Okay, I thought it was hilarious. But it is. Knowing really is half the battle. Because the other half, even if it may be harder, is living that out. Figuring out what it is that you know and then putting it into practice. The other half is consistently and intentionally acting out that which you know. 
I started today by telling you that you are what you do, and then I would come back to it and kind of put a little bit of a different spin on it, because really, I want to challenge us this morning. Here's kind of my, my final point. I got some more stuff. My final point I want to tell you is that if you want something you've never had, you've got to do something you've never done. Plain and simple. I told you, not much good, not much growth comes from our comfort zone. No pain, no gain. Um, I have another story for you, if you'll allow me. It's another gym story, because that's all I really do outside of here. But so, so when you work out, or you don't, I guess, um, everybody has genetic giftings and genetic weaknesses, right? Um, if you've ever worked out before, you probably find out pretty quickly what your genetic weakness is, and you're like, man, I wish that was better, or whatever, you know. And like, I'm one of those guys that when I go into the gym, um, I look at the guys that have great calves that never work them, and I want to punch them in the face because that just makes me mad because I do it like three or four days a week, and they don't do what I want them to do, you know. Um, but one of my genetic weaknesses um, were my forearms, so don't look at them, okay? Um, but I tell you this because for, I've been in the gym for 23 years. This has been a huge part of my life for 23 years. And for 21 of those years, when it came to at least forearm work, I did the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's the definition of what? Insanity. And I knew better. I knew better. I knew that if it wasn't working, maybe I should try something different. If I want what I've never had, do something I've never done. And so two years ago, I thought, you know what? Rather than just reading what works, why don't I find the guy in the gym with the best forearms and talk to that guy? What a novel idea. So I did. Coincidentally, it's the owner of my gym. The owner of my gym was the AAA LA Dodgers strength and conditioning coach. He has now become the LA, one of the LA Dodgers scouts. And I watch him train people every single day almost, uh, teenagers, you know, for, for school sports. And they're always doing forearm work and stuff. And I'll see him do stuff. I finally, like, Tyler, you got to help me out, bro. Like, what I'm doing obviously isn't working. And he's like, oh yeah, because you got to work the mid-range. I'm like, no, that's not how you do it. Like I'm telling him, right? The guy with the best forearms in the gym. Because one thing I know is to work the muscle properly, you got to take it through the full range of motion, okay? Fully lengthened, fully contracted. That's how you work it. Well, it's different with your forearms. Guess what you use all day long? Your forearms. And he's like, you do what you want. He's like, but you just said I had the best forearm. I'm like, yeah, you do. Okay, so I'll listen. Okay, now I'm not saying I had these great forearms. What I'm saying is it worked. I did something I've never done before. I took what was comfortable and I threw it out. And I tried something different. And guess what happened over the last two years? They started to develop. I thought all hope was lost for them. It wasn't. It started to work. Why? Because I did something that I've never done. And now I'm reaping the rewards of that. I'm gonna give you a place to start today. Um, I believe this is what, what will fix all of our problems, and it is the most generic, the most Christian-y, the most no-duh answer I could possibly give you, but it is the truth. Um, if you ever notice on Tuesdays at 11 a.m., you probably don't notice that part, but at 11 a.m., we put a, uh, a scripture verse out for the week. Uh, every Tuesday at 11, it goes out, and um, 
this scripture popped in my head because it was this past Tuesday's scripture, and we have a lot of fun with it. I, uh, I get the opportunity to write it and kind of study it and break it down. Um, I then send it over to Jacob. Jacob does his magic uh, polar bear stuff and makes these nice graphics, and then we send it to Annie, and then she posts it for us and schedules it all. And So it was just fresh in my mind this week, but it really did hit home when I was thinking about where, where, how, do I, how do we start? What do I tell you guys? What do I say when it comes to this idea of just starting somewhere? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear the Lord. Revere Him. Seek Him out. That's where you start. We probably all know something that we need to work on, but whether we need to tackle that or we just don't know, just start with seeking God. I wrote this sentence down because I wrote it, I typed it, and then I deleted it because I hated it, but then I felt like God was telling me to keep it in there. Um, the closer you are to God, the closer you are to victory. And I hate that sentence because I am not a prosperity gospel preacher, okay? I'm not. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that the closer that we are to God, the closer we are to victory over what he wants in our lives. See, unfortunately, if we're not careful, we'll begin to believe, well, if, if, I'm, if I'm just, you know, close to God, then I'll get everything that I want or it'll all work out for me. If that's not his purpose and will for your life, that's just not true. But the closer we are to God, the more victorious we are going to be in living out the plan for his, for our, his plan for our lives. See, that proverb, Proverbs 9.10, that was written before God came as a man in Jesus. So I'd imagine for them, it might have been a little bit harder to understand how to gain knowledge of God. So we have the gift of hindsight, don't we? We have the New Testament. We have God in the flesh. We have the ability to go back, read about who Jesus was, understand why he said the things that he said. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you're an NLT reader, it'll say he is the visible image of the invisible God. We have this, this gift of being able to go back and look at Jesus being this physical, tangible, touchable person, God in the flesh, who, by the way, was tempted just as we are, yet he did not sin. We have that gift. Later on in chapter 3, the same book, Colossians, Paul says these words. What he does is he, he doesn't just draw this line from Jesus to God, to God the Father. He draws this line from us through Jesus to God the Father. In verse 10, he says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become more like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Check this out. Pay attention. Christ is all that matters. That's it. And if you're a believer, he lives in all of us. Christ is all that matters. Nothing else. Jesus is enough. Imitate him. Seek him. Intentionality and consistency. 
makes it possible um, as to why Jesus makes this a life worth living? I believe the answer comes out of Hebrews 13, 8. It's because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unwavering, unchanging, consistent, intentional. He never changes. He's just love. He really does want the best for us. And it may not be what we want, but if we're willing to submit to his authority, we will do what he wants, and that is what's best for us. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, above all, just chase Jesus. So I don't know what that is for you this morning. I don't know what it is that you're struggling with or what it is that you need to develop in your life. All I can tell you is it has to start with him. But by starting with him, does it just mean to just ask him? Maybe it's talking to other people. Maybe it's talking to godly people. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear, the being in awe of him, the worship of him. Um, but God's also placed people in your life. Uh, as I pray, we're going to invite the prayer team to come forward. They're going to be at the front of the stage. They're up here every week. I know a lot of you utilize them. That's awesome. Maybe you just need to come and talk about them this morning. Maybe just talk to them. You don't even have to necessarily pray. They're going to pray with you, just so you know. But maybe you just want to talk to them. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you. Maybe you're struggling getting started in that good habit that you need to develop in your life. Maybe you're stuck and you just have no idea which way to go. Just talk to them. Pray with them. Schedule an appointment with one of the pastors on staff here. Talk to an elder. I don't know. I'm just trying to help you and give you some ideas. Talk to somebody. But above all, even though we're here and, and we love you, Jesus is all that matters. And when you place him as a number one priority in your life, it's amazing how other things fall into place. Yep, we screw up. But ultimately, it's about complete loyalty to Christ. Because he's all that matters. So if you want to come up and pray afterward, great. They're already up here. Look at them. They're excited to have you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. But we thank you, Lord, for who you've made us. The fact that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have you within us. Lord, maybe we remember going forward that change may be hard, but it's necessary. May we truly seek